Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of HashiCast. It's my privilege to have Vicky Chung on the show today. Vicky is the engineering manager at Lyft and is based in San Francisco. Vicky has an incredible experience in the industry and has worked for companies like OpenAI as the head of infrastructure, TrueVault, and Duolingo, and others. As most recently, Vicky is also the chair for KubeCon CloudNativeCon, a CNCF conference. So Vicky, this is a very brief introduction. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, yeah, thank you for the introduction. Um, so I think you kind of covered, you know, most of my career, but uh, let's see. I, I think the interesting thing that I usually talk to people about is um, before I left, all of the companies I've joined were less than five people. So that has a heavy bias on what kind of problems I like to focus on and um, how I like to think about things. Lyft is the first like real company I've worked at. Real so. company, I love, I love how you put it like that. <laughs> no, I think, I think, I'm sure like people have heard of OpenAI and and TrueVault and Duolingo. Like at least I have. Uh, they're they're one of like kind of the, even though it's small but like trailblazing startups. I feel. Yeah, it's the first company that I don't have to like spend hours explaining to my mom what it is. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I think that yeah, for sure. Lyft, uh, Lyft is fairly simple to explain and I mean, especially in today's world with ride sharing being so common uh that's for sure so uh we are always interested in learning about kind of the early beginnings of, of a person's career and like this is the, the one of the most kind of interesting questions that i i personally love uh, so where so what drove you to kind of pursue technology and and, and kind of computer science in particular um i was kind of a nerd from a very young age. <laughs> um, so I grew up in Hong Kong and uh, kind of, I think the earliest beginnings I remember is like maybe in like third or fourth grade in, we had like, I went to a public school. So we had this like computer class that covered like very basic, um, how was, what is a computer and how does it work? And like um, how to make a website eventually. And like, the public school was pretty scrappy, so we didn't really have, like, any tools or anything. Like, we just, you know, wrote HTML and stuff in, like, a notepad. Um, and then I kind of, like, went down a rabbit hole from there because I was like, oh, I can make websites, but there are all these, like, other much cooler websites on the internet. I wonder, like, how they do it. So I went down this rabbit hole of, like, JavaScript, like, PHP, Java, um, and then kind of continued from there. Um, my parents were like heavily against me going down this rabbit hole because like uh, in Hong Kong, I guess the more prestigious careers are like eye banker, lawyer, doctor, etc. So my parents were like trying to heavily influence me towards one of those directions, but I was just like pretty stubborn. That, that's interesting because I have a very similar, very, very similar kind of trajectory towards computer science and computer engineering as well. Like I, uh, yeah, very similar. Like, you know, we, we did, we did things like, uh, things like HTML and, um, and, and, you know, jQuery at that time, I think actually just JavaScript at that time, uh, using notepad classic, uh, also learned actually doing Java on notepad. It was horrible. I think I've talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> I've talked about it. Um, um, 
uh, talked about it at in, in, in previous episodes, one of the previous episodes, I think. Yeah, it was it wasn't a good experience. I I wish we would have IDEs and but our like computer teacher was just like too uh, too particular about like learning the right way. And I don't think like writing on Notepad is running running like Java the right way because there's like a lot of redundant code that you have to write. Like, yeah. Yeah, I remember the days of like I think I used Notepad plus plus at one point. Is that a thing? And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> I remember Note plus plus plus. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, that that was a good learning experience for me as well. Uh, luckily, my mom was actually on board of me, like kind of pursuing uh, computers, and she thought it was a hobby. But uh, well, when I started getting serious about it, she's like, "Think about other things that you can do." Uh, I was like, "Mom, uh, I think I really like computers and." She's like, okay, well, then you have to get a proper, like, pursue a proper degree and stuff. And then that's what I ended up doing. Oh, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> I had to go to, like, pretty great lengths to convince my parents that, like, this is what I was going to do. Yeah, so so you did end up pursuing uh, computer science in, uh, in, in university, right? Yeah, so I ended up doing uh, computer science at math at Carnegie Mellon. Um, but there was, like... Uh, kind of a long lead up to that in my teenage years with like doing various crazy things to um, convince my parents that like they can't tell me otherwise so <laughs> what do they what do they think now what do they think now uh, oh yeah they like don't even mention that they discouraged me at all like, <laughs> just just wipe that <laughs> off your memory that never that never happened yeah yeah they just <laughs> Yeah, they just totally own it now. They like tell people like, "Oh yeah, my daughter is like a software engineer in Silicon Valley." And I'm like, "Do you remember like years ago you told me not to do that?" All right, all right. So switching gears a little bit. So I think the first time I saw you, uh, well, on the internet, of course, was uh, I think Nick Jackson, who's uh, who's one of my close friends and also is part of my team at HashiCorp. Uh, he was doing, uh, I think a. Um, a show or like a kind of a presentation uh, event called uh, Azure Open Dev, which Microsoft was hosting, I think. And I remember you being there. Uh, I think you were with OpenAI back then. Uh, and I remember you demoing, like using Terraform to manage like some amazing like AI ML stuff. Like tell us, uh, tell us like more about that, you know, that side of things. Yeah. So um, at OpenAI, we invested quite a bit into like automation because our team was very, very small. Like when I started, it was just me and our CTO, Greg. And for a long time, our infrastructure team was like just me and sometimes like one other person. Um, so yeah, we invested a lot into things like Terraform and Kubernetes and all the things that helped us manage infrastructure of like several thousand nodes with like a few people. Wow, that's impressive. Did you did you like get like a kind of a like the greenfield deployment? Were you like already you were already doing something a certain way and then got into like kind of the, the Kubernetes Terraform and on? Um, so we were pretty much invested into Terraform and Kubernetes from the get go. Although like back then, um, they were both pretty new. So there were like a lot of bugs and stuff that we yeah. ran into. Um, especially, I think, on the Kubernetes side, like the 1.2, 1.3 releases were like pretty shaky. Um, but, yeah. you know, it was kind of like we decided it was the best option even at the time. Um, 
we had researchers that came in with kind of like whatever setup they're used to from like academia or other companies. And so like we had set up boxes that were like outside of Kubernetes that they could do whatever they wanted to while we were kind of stabilizing our infrastructure. But yeah. I think today, you know, I guess it's interesting for you, especially like, you know, I want your opinion on this, but like, I feel there's like the whole, uh, you know, ML and, you know, the, the ML framework and things like that, they, they're like so supportive of, of kind of Kubernetes being kind of the, 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 the orchestrator layer and like kind of the, the scheduler framework. I feel like what, what's your experience for that? Like, what did, did you have you seen this evolution? Was it pretty organic, you feel? Uh, or, or you feel it's just just due to kind of the, the sheer popularity of uh, kind of Kubernetes as this big platform that these ML frameworks want to uh, want to kind of, you know, kind of make a target platform, basically? Yeah, I think it wasn't obvious at all at the time. Um, I think it, a lot of it has to do with timing as well. Like ML and deep learning really scaled up around the time that Kubernetes started emerging as like a mainstream option. Um, so like a lot of it was timing, like many teams were looking at scaling up when Kubernetes was like becoming a real platform or like a solid choice. Um, but like even then, um, in my first year opening, we got like a lot of questions about like why Kubernetes, like, is this even production ready or like, you know, a lot of abstractions just didn't map right to, um, running ML workloads. It was like clearly a platform that was designed to run like microservices, um, stateless services, stuff like that. So there were a lot of like hacks we had to do to kind of like bend Kubernetes to our will, so to speak. Um, obviously that's not the case anymore today. I think the community started investing a lot into that area, but yeah, in the early days it was not obvious. Yeah, I think this, this is so interesting because like I, you know, in my in my previous uh, kind of, you know, jo jobs, I, you know, of course, I like I, 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 I was lucky enough to kind of get into schedulers and work with Mesos and uh, and, and, and Kubernetes and, and other schedulers. And I, I was really like for me that the, I think the most critical piece, like the, the technology piece was always there and you can see the evolution, you can see the trajectory, very similar, also kind of very similar to HashiCorp tools, I think. Uh, you know, when early on, you know, like 0203 version 0203, uh, you know, they, they do one use case really well and they might have a few bugs in here, here and there. But like as they grow, you can kind of see the trajectory, like where the actual like tools going, where this open source project is going. But I feel you always need um, these people that that actually are, are convincing organizations to to adopt uh, to adopt these type of technologies and actually bridge the gap between the people and the technology in a way that actually, you know, gives you business value. And like, I think not a lot is talked about, not a lot of like talk, tech talk. It's all about the projects and all about the hype around them. It's less about the people that actually make, um, make these tools successful at, the, at these organizations. Like what, what is your stance on it? I feel like that that's something that's super interesting, like kind of the people side of technology. Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, at OpenAI and at Lyft, we always have to kind of, I just like basically have a pitch ready for like why we're doing Kubernetes because like we always um, get asked these questions. Um, and yeah, I agree there's like no clear cut choice, but it's kind of like, well, we get all this community support and also like, you know, there's a bunch of trade-offs with like different platforms, right? Like when we were at OpenAI, um, 
looking at like more traditional HPC kind of cluster management software was like, I don't know, it was just kind of painful. It was not built for the cloud. Like we tried to run it on AWS and it was just like, uh, it was like very confused because it's like um, meant to be run in a data center with some static set of nodes, for example. Um, so yeah, I think convincing people is always going to be a thing because like people come from different backgrounds or they have different experiences with software. And like maybe some people are more um, hesitant to start or to try new things. So yeah, it's going to be always a thing. That's for sure. I think I think that's that's fair, right? Like people people being skeptical about like a new new technology or like a new tool that you're introducing a company. I think that's totally okay. But I think what people don't with certain people, I think what can help. I guess this might be something interesting. Some interesting tip for listeners is I think one of the things that I've seen being successful is what you exactly kind of nailed there, which is being able being able to like kind of be ready with these the, for these questions and being able to answer them with certain solid facts and also talk about the trade offs being like yeah like this platform or this this tool doesn't actually solve this but uh, for what uh, what we need for a business it actually solves all these things uh, the trajectory is good the promise is amazing uh, and I, I think those those type of things are uh, might help for like you know kind of introducing newer technologies to companies for sure. Um, all right, so now let's talk about kind of some of your like kind of uh, learnings from like building these like really large scale like kind of platforms like at even even at a smaller company. Like, what what was your kind of maybe couple of takeaways from like building these 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 big platforms at scale? I think one big thing we learned pretty early on was to, well, one try not to over engineer. I think. Um, engineers like to engineer things. <laughs> it's like what we do. We love building things. And sometimes, you know, you got to stop and kind of step back and be like, why are we even building this thing? Or why are we building it this way? Um, and I think it's particularly relevant for infrastructure um, because I just think like infrastructure shouldn't be black boxes unless you're like very, very confident that like your software will never fail. Um, because when your software does fail, your user is like kept away from being able to debug what's wrong or like be able to tell you what they're seeing. Um, and that was like a big thing at OpenAI. At first we went down this route of like trying to just like predict all the use cases that were gonna happen. And so we were like, oh, we'll make this like super sleek uh, CLI and you can like, you know, run in these different modes or whatever. and you know, you'll never have to worry about infrastructure again. Uh, that was just like, uh, it ended up not working because, you know, new use cases come up and the researchers essentially were like not empowered to um, make these changes because they're like kept away from, you know, they're behind all these abstractions. Um, yeah, I think that's like probably the biggest thing and like related to that is try not to pre predict all the use cases at once. Like, you have to kind of scope out your project, be like, all right, I'm just going to handle like the 80% common use cases and like provide escape hatches for the other 20%, but not try to like, you know, for example, make an interface with like 20 flags that handles everybody's needs. That's just like not going to work well for anybody. Yeah, I, I think both both those points resonate with with a lot of people I, uh, I, I can kind of imagine, uh, especially the, the one... The one regarding like kind of uh, you know the the eighty percent use case, I think that's like super critical. I, I I feel like 
the, the, the goal should really be to kind of optimize that like 80, 85% use case and make it like super easy. And then that actually frees up, you know, a lot of people to kind of work on that, like, you know, the, the kind of the, uh, the smaller percentage of like edge cases and make them make them better over time. And I think kind of understand them better. I feel like, yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Like as, you know, a, a lot of these platforms that kind of give you all these knobs, right. And, and is the, it, it can be good and bad at the same time. Cause like, I think in, in situations like that's why I feel like operations, I feel like operations and SRE roles are critical. I, I feel they, they, these roles can actually, um, you know, make things simple for for example developers who just want to write code and they want like a uh, a certain repo or a certain kind of endpoint to push code to and then the rest should be taken care of and and i think those are the type of experiences that i think we'll see well which is already happening in the industry we we, sh- we should we should kind of encourage is because like it, it actually simplifies a lot of things for people because you know and then that's where like the, the idea of abstractions come in in which you can actually build a thin layer on top of like, for example, a platform like Kubernetes or a scheduler like Nomad, uh, and then give like, uh, give like a kind of an entry point to developers. And then basically make make that that 85% use case that you're talking about, like super easy uh, to, for, for, for them to kind of use, uh, use the platform. And then if they want any additional features, like for example, they also want to, to, to tweak the, the network resources or something like that. Uh, then yes, you know, we, you can talk about it and as a consensus, you know, add that to the abstraction and, and then they get access to the network resource configuration and so on. And I think that's, a, I think, an okay way to, okay way to scale that rather than giving them, for example, like giving everyone kubectl or something, uh, probably not the, probably not the best. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's something we think a lot about at Lyft because the team is much larger there that we have to introduce to Kubernetes. And we're thinking about like, what is the abstraction that they really care about? And like, it's nice that, you know, some people can drop down to kubectl or, um, you know, interact with Kubernetes directly, but most people probably don't want that. Um, so, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a that's an interest. Like, yeah, that's always like a case that I, I feel like we all are aware about this. But I I hope like slowly people uh, uh, people trend towards that as as they think about adopting platforms, adopting these uh, uh, these like container schedulers and things like that. I think that's like one of the one of the things that that's kind of proven uh, time and time again that it's it's become an issue over time. But yeah, I think that's something that I'm sure like we all are thinking about. So that's really awesome that we discussed that. Uh, (laughs) All right. So let's, you know, talk about open source. We were just talking about all open source stuff. Uh, So what was your kind of your first contribution contribution to, to open source uh, project or, you know, a small project that you might have worked on? Um, Actually, I don't super remember. Um, I, I feel like I worked in places that didn't have a lot of, like a strong open source contribution kind of mentality per se. But I also, let me think. I think it might've been like etcd maybe. I like, because we were um, pretty early adopters of Kubernetes and etcd. So I think we ran into like some bug or maybe it was like missing some feature. And yeah, that was like my first uh, contribution. So I have a few etcd stories. I think one of them was when um, etcd went from version 2 of the API to version 3, and they went from JSON to using the gRPC interface and protobufs. Um, yeah. we, we ended up upgrading our Kubernetes cluster, um, 
and uh, started using etcd version 3 and we did go through a bunch of you know a bunch of data loss uh, just just because the, the the update was a pretty massive breaking change i feel and uh, we did follow the upgrade guide it didn't really help at that point i think we just had to do a brand new installation and move all our microservices onto the new cluster oh yeah we had to do that in like a very very careful upgrade <laughs> that was an interesting thing about open ai and i guess maybe like batch systems in general is that like you know i, I think migrating um uh maybe a system of like microservices can be harder than migrating like a batch system because like batch jobs are kind of ephemeral. They have like some expiration, they like die, and then you can like spin it up next time on like new infrastructure. Um, whereas like long running jobs, you need to make sure there's like no downtime and you kind of like slowly shift weight or whatever. Um, so yeah, if, at OpenAI it was actually like, I think, easier to make or to upgrade infrastructure because we should just be like all right we're sunsetting this cluster tomorrow flip the flag in your cli and like uh start sending jobs to this cluster instead ah lucky that's uh that's <laughs> i i wish we would have more bad jobs but yeah we had like long running kind of microservices i feel like even though we deployed to them often uh yeah it wasn't it wasn't, yeah. Like, let's not, you know what? Like, let's move on. Because I think it doesn't bring uh, too many good memories that I remember. Like, we lost all the all the pods and stuff. Now I think about it a little bit more. I start feeling that sadness that I felt uh, when, when I, was in, uh, I was in operations. But yeah, I think, I guess, like, let's talk a little bit more about Kubernetes, I guess. So, like, I, I know that you built, like, some, some open source projects, I guess, talking about open source as well. I, I think you built, like, a kind of a custom scheduler or, like, a custom, sorry, auto-scaling tool. Or something yeah so i think that was one of the things that um when we started using kubernetes we realized that it wasn't um well it was a good and a bad thing i think good thing was like kubernetes was super customizable and like the api is very usable so we could like you know build any components on top of it and have very very good controls over our infrastructure i think the thing we learned was that like Kubernetes ultimately, um, a lot of the base abstractions were for have long running web services. So um, for batch jobs, we kind of like needed to build some things on our own. Um, so the autoscaler was kind of the first piece of component on top of Kubernetes that we built at OpenAI. Um, and yeah, it basically does what it says it does, which is it scales the cluster um, based on what the job queue is and it's I think it's it came out before maybe the official cluster autoscaler um, but it kind of has if you compare them today it kind of has like more knobs for controlling how you want to drain your jobs or how you want to do um, maybe like have idle capacity and like stuff that you might care about in a batch system but maybe less so in uh, traditional microservice environment all right so just to be clear this is not like your kind of your horizontal pod scaler this is very much like the kind of the cluster autoscaler which is yeah yeah and and based based on like based on whatever like metrics and stuff that that you can provide it it, it can kind of automatically do that does this like autoscaler run on kubernetes itself yeah it runs on kubernetes um it's i think the structure is quite similar to the cluster autoscaler 
in that it just kind of uh, interrogates the Kubernetes API and, um, for example, the AWS API for kind of the, straight, so the state of the world and see like how many pods are pending, um, how much resources are needed to schedule all these pending pods, and it tries to like reconcile that. That's super cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm glad you you got to work on projects like this. Like I I've like in my in my experience, I never got to that point when I was like thinking about like cluster auto scaling and stuff. We we very much relied on uh, since we were managing our own cluster, relied on us doing the auto scale work in in, in not an auto scale work, but the the scaling the cluster work. Uh, we definitely use auto scaling groups in Amazon. But we we never like kind of did any metric types of auto scaling on a cluster itself. But we we definitely try. I think we used the cluster. We tried to use the cluster auto scaler uh, once or twice, but it didn't work exactly how we wanted it to work um, because we actually didn't really know uh, didn't really know kind of the metrics, the the exact metrics that we want. The, we wanted the cluster to auto scale because an auto scaling action is actually a big deal, right? Like you know, a, a node coming online. Uh, it does, you know, if you're running like in, a, in if you're running like a bunch of other things on the node, like for example, like of course you have like the kubelet and the Docker daemon and so on and things like that 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 Kubernetes requires. But you might also have things like the log shipper or like you know, uh, for example, console agent because console probably provides like some form of service discovery to the nodes, or, or you might have you know some other like security tool running on it. It does. It might take a decent amount of time to boot a node. Uh, and mm. I think this is interesting because this actually drives a, is a good segue into like things like um, I don't know if you've heard about the virtual kubelet project, which is like super interesting, yeah. <laughs> which you can like burst out of like the Kubernetes cluster. You don't need <laughs> nodes. Uh, what do you think about stuff like that? I think it's super interesting um, you know, to think about other ways to use um, the Kubernetes API and whatever infrastructure you want to use. So yeah, I, I think it's super interesting. Yeah, I think not having to spin up nodes is, is always nice. Uh, I feel yeah. that's like a good, interesting, but it may or may not work for all the kids, for all type, types of workloads, but but for sure, I, I guess for the batch use case, uh, it's definitely possible that you can have easily burst out to like something else. That's not, you know, that's not like running on actual, um, like nodes of your managed cluster. It might be something right. that's already pre-provisioned or something like that. Uh, that's cool. All right, let's switch gears to like your current role at Lyft. So, could you tell us a little bit more about the the role? Uh, I know you're kind of an engineering manager. Like, could you tell us like your day to day and, and the type of things you focus on at Lyft? Um, yeah. So at Lyft, my team focuses on moving all of Lyft to Kubernetes. Um, so that's kind of what I think about most days is like how. Um, how to support all the um, teams that are moving onto Kubernetes. And this has like several things. So we spent, you know, kind of the first part of the project really just like building out a reliable platform that's uh, production ready. And then like recently we're spending a lot of time thinking about usability, which is something we touched on earlier. Like, okay, what kind of abstractions over kubectl do we need? Um, how will people interact with their services on Kubernetes without overwhelming them with all these like new words? Um, and yeah, we also think a lot about education. Like, you know, we spend a lot of time, or we spent a lot of time teaching people about like how to use EC2 or like 
currently the legacy stack is like salt based. So like how to read salt, et cetera. Um, and now it's teaching people a different way to think about infrastructure. Like what is, um, like you're responsible for your container and like, what does that mean? And what are the things that you would need outside of your container, et cetera. So it's just a new way to think about things. So, yeah. That's super cool. So, okay, you mentioned production ready cluster, right? So what is that definition of like production ready? What, what according to you makes a, makes a platform or a, a, some form of like, I guess, like a compute resource, like a, a fully production ready? Um, I think there's like kind of a baseline of production ready. And then, you know, you're always thinking about it because you're like always growing and scaling. Um, but I think a lot of it was, well, one was just like whether it was feature ready to support, you know, all the things that we use in our legacy stack. So like um, all the observability components had to be in place and that it had to have parity. And, um, you know, if something went wrong that we do give engineers all the information they need to debug the infrastructure. So observability is a big part. Um, and then networking is another one, like we use Envoy heavily. So we spent a lot of time making sure that um, all our clusters could join the Envoy mesh network and uh, basically have, I guess, like appear the same as the legacy instance. So um, yeah, I think production ready, a lot of also we do like load testing and um, make sure that we have like disaster recovery runbooks. So yeah, there's a long list of things that we do. That is super, that's super cool. Like I, I feel, well, you mentioned Envoy and I, we haven't had Matt on the show yet, but hopefully <laughs> we'll get him. Uh, but yeah, either way, like I think, so how is that, right? How is working with kind of working for a company that's like actually promoting or like, you know, promoting engineers to work on projects like Envoy and, and I know Envoy was, you know, of course, started internally at Lyft uh, to solve the problems there. Like, so, like, how does a user usually end up interact with the Envoy? Could you kind of talk about some of the, the, the kind of the, the, the internals of, like, how, how is the process to kind of interact with Envoy? Does, like, does developers get to do it? Or does the, your team, for example, gets to do it? Or developers, right, or developers kind of manipulate an abstracted, you know, kind of configuration that Envoy powers in the background and how does that all work yeah it's mostly abstracted so um lyft has hundreds of microservices and each microservice has kind of uh let's say like this metadata yaml file where they like configure what this service needs or what it is so in that abstraction they have this like envoy config where they configure like their service and it's like inbound outbound requests um and that's basically it and then like uh, the infrastructure team takes over from that generates the envoy config and um makes sure that there's an envoy sidecar that the main process can talk to uh, that's interesting because I, I yeah so it's it's well I feel like that's well abstracted away. Like you, no one's writing those JSON Envoy config files. <laughs> like hopefully someone, someone is, someone is like you know just interacting with an abstracted piece of it, and something else is doing that, which is which is good. Yeah, which <laughs> is the the kind of the way to do it. And you also touched on education, so I think that actually hits. Uh, it's really close to us. Like it's especially with, with my team. Like we focus a lot on like 
product education, both internally and externally. So what's worked for you in terms of like kind of the, the the format of like what people usually ask you or do you do like regular kind of these uh, these meetings are like a regular cadence about, about like educating everyone on a specific topic or it's it's most like ad hoc like people come up to you and be like okay we want to learn more about for example amazon ec2 auto scaling how does that work uh, and then you, your team has to kind of you know uh, do a session with them yeah there's a few ways so there's educating the infrastructure team internally on Kubernetes because it's like this new thing that everyone's going to learn to operate at some level. Um, so we do a lot of brown bags and um, kind of like demos of what Kubernetes is or like how different teams will interact with it. Um, and then for the rest of engineering, we do, uh, we have kind of a biweekly workshop that people can sign up for. Um, it's modeled after the onboarding workshop. So like it's a thing that people are like somewhat familiar with, but like now remapped to Kubernetes and um, it shows them what changes there are, what changes there aren't. Um, And eventually this will become the new onboarding, um, I guess, onboarding training. So. Yeah. I think certain technologies that, underpin a company's technology software delivery pipeline should be introduced uh, earlier and the earlier the better I feel yeah I think it's also like I mean it's scary from the other side as well right like they're used to being on call for this one service that's like um, deployed this specific way and now we're asking them to be ready to on call um, the service deployed on completely different infrastructure Uh, and I think that's something that, you know, a workshop will help get you started, but like at the end of the day, there's like continual education that's needed to help people prep for on-call. Yeah. I think also like kind of touching up to on this whole education topic, a more exciting, I feel more exciting topic is you've like, you're one of the conference chairs, uh, I think with Brian Lies for the KubeCon Cloud Native Con uh, conferences. Yeah. That's super exciting. So what led you to kind of like, you know, helping and helping organize these events and create kind of the program for them? Um, well, I think I am pretty picky about conferences, but I do really like KubeCon. Um, so like as an attendee, that's one of um, the conferences that I've like consistently gone to year after year so I just like really care about it um and uh I also really like organizing events um I'm pretty honored to have this chance to like uh shape what uh, thousands of people will see at this conference so yeah pretty excited Sounds sounds super exciting. So, what other? So, for example, I, I'm I'm assuming the CFP is still open for the the US conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's still open. So, yeah. So, what other types of talks are you looking for? Uh, what would you say? Like, is it like an ideal kind of an ideal uh, situation for for someone to get in? <laughs> um, well, so I think it's like at this point where um, there's a lot of different use cases for Kubernetes these days. So, you know, maybe two or three years ago when I went to KubeCon, it was like um, pretty, uh, there's like not a lot, for example, about like ML, there's not a lot about, um, you know, how to use GPUs on Kubernetes, stuff like that. Um, But these days, you know, everything's kind of fair game. Um, And I think that's good and bad. Like there's, 
it could be an overwhelming experience for somebody who's like new to Kubernetes. But at the same time, I think like for somebody who's been in it at, uh, for a while, it's like so cool to see um, the variety of talks that are there. I think things I'm like pretty interested in seeing is like now that um, all these Kubernetes deployments are like starting to mature, I want to see what um, challenges people are facing um, now that we're breaking into like pretty big enterprises and like, you know, education is one, right? Like rolling out um, these huge deployments in a huge enterprise, like how do other people do it? <laughs> I'm interested in that. Um, I'm also interested in like um, kind of developer productivity. It's related to like, how do we, how do we abstract um, Kubernetes for kind of your average um, you know, server engineer, but uh, maybe more generally, like how do people set up their um, companies or their teams developer environment these days to interact with Kubernetes? Awesome. So though all the people that are listening now, uh, do you have an idea of like what type of docs uh, that you can kind of submit, what type of proposals that you can submit, which is awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Vicky. Really appreciate it. All right. So this is kind of like the like the last question in the program is like, I'd love to ask this. Like, so where do you think, you know, technology in general is kind of heading to? Like what are the big, you know, operational kind of and, and, and kind of engineering challenges that you feel that our industry should solve in, in, the, in the coming years? Um, yeah, I think I, I would like to see, well, I, I think there's like a shifting focus into developer productivity, but that's kind of like what I want to see as well. Like engineers are expensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, like if we can find ways to make engineers much more productive, uh, like I think then we would be a lot happier. <laughs> um, I, I see a lot of things that, you know, engineers or like my team does that um, is, I feel like could be, there could be better tooling or it could be automated, stuff like that. So I think there's like just a huge opportunity in terms of like how we actually engineer. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on, on that. I feel like engineering productivity, like I just like being being productive as an engineer. Also, it's a good morale kind of feeling, you know, when you when you join a company, you're able to produce work, you know, in, in, the, in a matter of weeks and being able to show, uh, kind of relate to relate to problems, being able to solve them easily, give them the right tools. I think it's just like a good feeling. They That's one of the things that I always like try to, you know, try to make that my KPI. Like if I can make people more productive or like engineers more happy. I think it, it definitely helps like the overall company's morale and the engineering organization's morale, I feel. Um, that's for sure. All right. So the fun, one final question. It's a, it's a slightly less serious question. So uh, this is kind of a tradition on a show. I think Nick started this tradition, so I have to continue this. <laughs> so, um, so if you were a video game, what video game would you be? Oh, um, let me think. Uh, <laughs> I feel like there's probably some like recency bias here, like depending on what I played. Um, I don't want to like go too dark. Well, so I was thinking like, oh, I really like Don't Starve Together. <laughs> like that's a really dark video game. But I don't know. I just like really identify with it. Like 
Um, I don't know if, if you've played it before, but kind of the premise is just like, you don't want to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, you're constantly balancing like your hunger and like your mental health, <laughs> just like mm-hmm. surviving. Um, and I, not that I think like I'm in like survival mode, but I just <laughs> think that um, there's like some good analogies there to like, don't serve together and um engineering so <laughs> that's for sure it just definitely prepares you for like that that event you know in the future that people always they show in movies and stuff yeah. and like oh like there's like the zombie apocalypse or something it's just like get ready for that already you'll be you'll be the one who's like well i'll be in your camp i guess and then <laughs> just follow what you do and survive for me i think the the minor one of my favorite like kind of childhood games has been um this game called uh, contra i don't know if you played it i contra haven't was, it's like a like a game that was on the nintendo platform uh i loved playing that game and it's like i think the best part of that, ge- that game that relates to me is like the amazing music like it's like the the intro music was just so like it was so hype it would just get you like super excited to play the game and then, like, it was really loud. And, like, in some places, to be honest, like, it would actually make things difficult while you play the game. So it was like a, <laughs> a, a, like a, 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 like a shooter game in which, like, you would shoot all these, like, kind of things that come at you. And then there were different, like, challenges of how to get to a, to a level because you weren't walking on, like, kind of a straight line. You would walk through, like, certain obstacles and stuff like that. But it was, like, one of my favorite games because just because of the music, I feel like the music just made my mood. Like, I was just in any, I would be, like, super, like, sad during the day. I was just, as soon as I get on the the video game, I would just, my mood would just immediately change. And then I couldn't sleep because I was so excited (laughs) after playing the game. But, yeah, one of the, one of the things I really enjoyed. Um, so Vicky, really, really appreciate you coming on the show. I know we've been trying to schedule this uh, for for a decent amount of time. I'm glad we were able to, and I really appreciate you giving us uh, some some time. Oh yeah, thank you for having me. This has been fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Vicky. You've been listening to Hashicast with your host Nick and Mishra. Today's guest has been Vicky Chung from Lyft. Be sure to tune in next time.